The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Podcast, presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. This is Jason Bradbury, and welcome to this week's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we've got the latest AV news. I bring you behind-the-scenes details of the gadgets in my life this week. Plus, Phil Hinton and the AV Play team discuss their recent experiences with the ISF calibration course. This week's this week's audio-visual news. In this week's AV news, new amps and receivers and a 3,000-watt pre-pro system. Listen on for a world's first. Following the success of its ES range of receivers launched last year, Sony is expanding its AV lineup with three new models, the STR-DG 510, 710 and 910. According to the usual PR comment, they combine simplicity of setup and operation with enhanced connectivity, yet retail at highly competitive prices. The new receivers are apparently designed to form the perfect hub for any home entertainment system and appeal to everyone from first-time flat-screen buyers to committed gamers. They also feature the innovative DM port system, which users can use to connect a mobile phone, network, walkman or computer to the receiver and play the sound through their speakers. According to Sony, their engineers have designed the new models to be incredibly simple to use without compromising on sound quality. All three receivers have fully automatic setup to match the sound to the user's rooms and speaker layout. Using the critically acclaimed digital cinema audio calibration system first seen in the ES receiver range. The receivers are designed to handle all current entertainment needs, while also being ready for the future. All three have HDMI switching, allowing multiple source components, DVD players or recorders, games, consoles and digital TV boxes, etc. to be connected and switched, meaning just one cable runs out to the TV screen, keeping installations nice and tidy. Buyers of the STR DG710 and 910 will also be able to control their whole Sony system using a single remote with the new Bravia Theatre Sync technology built into the models. The digital media port system, using a variety of optional modules compatible with a single rear panel connector, will allow portable music devices and computers to be played through the receiver. Sony has modules for use with its network Walkman players, as well as a Bluetooth module for use with the Sony Ericsson Walkman phones and other compatible models, and a Wi-Fi unit to enable music stored on a computer to be streamed wirelessly to the receiver. According to Sony, all three receivers set new standards for specification and features at their price levels. And with the entry-level STR-DG550, Sony is bringing its fast, accurate digital cinema auto calibration system to a sector of the market where any such automatic setup is rare. Meanwhile, the STR-DG910 has a range of facilities unusual even in much more expensive models, such as video scaling and compatibility with the high-definition audio now available on Blu-ray discs. Sony state that it delivers superb audio and video performance, developed through painstaking design and engineering, and extensive tuning. The STR-DG510 is available now, 
and the STR DG710 released in late May, with the top of the line STR DG910 in June. Moving on, and it's showtime again in the AV world, with the Munich Sound and Vision Show taking place over the 17th and 20th of May. As with most shows, there are boasts of world firsts, but it looks like Denon are announcing the first in a new line of HD products. First up is the unveiling of the Denon AVR4308 DAB HD Wi-Fi 7.1 AV receiver, which is slated to appear in September and priced at approximately £2,000. This new product is the first to wear the company's new wave design style, which brings a softer, sleeker look to Denon home cinema. Using HDMI 1.3 and two HDMI outputs, the unit boasts Dolby True HD and DTS Master Audio HD decoders, deep color and XVYCC support, along with auto lip sync technology. To help deliver the best possible sound, the 4308 also boasts identical quality 140 watt power for all seven channels, Denon dynamic discrete surround circuit and proprietary advanced AL24 for all channels, new audiophile chassis construction design, compressed audio restorer and Denon's first DAB tuner in an AR series product. Scaling to 1080p is performed by the now famous Ferruja chipset, while other exciting features include a photorealistic menu system, Odyssey Multi-EQ XT room correction, three-zone room-to-room compatibility with a slave unit, Wi-Fi and Ethernet connectivity with full networking capabilities, and a host of other neat network features and streaming options, including a new version of web radio. It would appear that the Denon will be the first to market with dedicated HD audio decoding and HDMI 1.3 support, and we can't wait to see it in the flesh. And finally for today, an announcement which has certainly got the AV Podcast staff very excited indeed. Although details of the exact specifications are a little on the vague side, it's understood that Denon will finally release standalone processor and power amp units boasting more technology than anything else on the planet and twice the size of anything that the company have released so far, the AVP A1HD and POA A1HD will offer 10 channels of audio power with an output rated at 3,000 watts. Expect these units to hit the UK in October for approximately £10,000. We'll give you more details as we get them from the launch in Germany. Join the discussion at Europe's largest home cinema website. Log in to avforums.com. You're listening to the AV Podcast. The AV Podcast. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that each week I impart a little detail of the life I lead as a gadget journalist. Um, I'm currently out of series of the gadget show. We're coming back in the autumn and I've moved house. And so my life hasn't been as gadget-filled as it normally is. However, there is an event uh, on the horizon, something that um, I actually only found confirmation about today. And it's kind of gadget-related, and, and I've got to be honest, life-changing for me. Uh, and it's this. Um, I've just been commissioned to write a three-part... Well, a th- three books, basically. If you can imagine Harry Potter uh, with uh, gadgets instead of magic, that's kind of what I'm doing. So I've spent the last year writing... Uh, a book and I've told no one about it so this really isn't exclusive for those of you that are interested uh, in reading sort of techno thrillers it's for the uh, teen market so kind of Harry Potter is about the the pitch uh, although it's more orientated towards boys kind of Anthony Horowitz style readers that sort of thing or the young James Bond 
Um, that's kind of where it's at. It's about a character called Jackson Farley. And uh, Jackson is inducted into a uh, top secret organization run by a kind of fictional version of Bill Gates uh, called Devlin Lear. I'm telling you, I don't, know, I don't know whether I should be saying all of this, but hey, I'm saying it now. And uh, this guy uh, runs this uh, unique band of robot, of rem- remotely controlled robotic uh, sort of defense droids. And Jackson, as an avid computer games player, is drafted in along with some other people, a girl from America and some guys from Japan, to team up and fly these machines remotely to uh, various far-flung places. And um, all kinds of stuff happens. But the interesting thing is that I'm, I'm keeping... While it, it sounds very far-fetched and sci-fi, the whole concept of the book is to keep the science real. So lots of stuff that I've seen over the last few years, like, um, like a cloaking device, for example, uh, an actual cloak, oddly enough, that rendered the person wearing it partially invisible... You probably think I'm making this up. I've seen this thing with my own eyes, if that's not the greatest pun in history. At the um, Next Fest Technology uh, Symposium, in it was in Chicago, I think, that year. And um, it uses a kind of projection system and was very unwieldy, but it was a cloaking device. And I've used this technology to render some of the, uh, the robots in the book uh, invisible. So that's real world. Satellite uh, repair and retrieval droids, which are currently in development, have also inspired some of the um, technology in my book. And uh, retinal projection, which is something I'm really interested in. And uh, again, I, I haven't witnessed it firsthand, uh, but I know that various university departments that I've visited are also developing this technology. It's the ability to, to project onto your iris and show you an image that you would normally see in a TV screen or a projector straight into the eye. And it's, it, it's um, you know, this is real working hardware. It's, it's being used in the military now as we speak. And... You know, industry are very excited about this technology, which which people anticipate being rolled out uh, in about sort of five to ten years. But that makes a, a big play in my book, as does uh, the world of MySpace and blogging and all that sort of stuff. So um, it's very exciting, exciting enough for Penguin to um, to commission me to do not one book but three. So um, that's all rather good. Although obviously, if the first book's no good, if it bombs, and I've must touch wood now. I've said that. Hang on. There you go. Just touch the windowsill. Uh, oh no, it's UPVC. Um, if that bombs, then the other two books obviously won't follow. But the idea is that they kind of sign you up to do three. So it's extremely exciting for me. An absolute life-changing event. Something that is, um, you know, I think pretty um, sort of techno-related. techno, techno related. And, uh, you know, very, very exciting. Brought to you by AV Forums and AVPlay.com. This is the AV Podcast. Phil Hinton and the AV Play team recently attended the ISF Calibration Technicians course in Cambridge. Not only would they learn how to professionally calibrate screens for DVD and hardware reviews, but they'd also get a better understanding of the underlying technology of televisions and projectors. The course was certainly not as easy as the team first imagined. In this week's roundtable discussion, they impart just what it's like to aim for video perfection. This week's Roundtable Discussion. And welcome to another Home Cinema Roundtable. And this week we're going to talk about ISF again. And the reason why is that the AV Play team, Chris and Kaz, who join us tonight, uh, we've been on the ISF calibration course, courtesy of uh, Neil Davidson at Team W Marketing, who also joins us this evening. So, good evening, guys. Hello. Now, the whole point of uh, the review team taking the ISF course is so that Basically, our review systems are, are calibrated correctly uh, when reviewing DVDs. Um, so the guys can then 
obviously put that in the reviews and they, they can see just how well the, the disc is mastered knowing that the display devices are properly set up. And Chris, I think the first thing that kind of hit us was just how in-depth this course was, wasn't it? Uh, yes, uh, quite seriously way over my head for the first several hours, in fact. Yeah, we, we had a day of intense theory, didn't we, behind it all. And uh, yeah, it certainly, it certainly wasn't just tuning your picture in, was it? There was a lot more to it than that. It was the science behind how an image is created and transferred, how our eyes work, how we perceive that image, how light affects it. It was a very, very in-depth sort of um, field to go into, but certainly uh, you know, an eye-opening experience, wasn't it? Well, I certainly haven't done anything like that since um, university, and uh, it brought back a lot of things that I'd kind of hoped maybe I'd forgotten. But um, it was good to good to refresh my memory on a lot of things and learn a lot of new stuff. And that was the thing, it, it was very much uh, quite intensive for the first day, wasn't it, Neil? And our trainer made sure as well that we were all up at the crack of dawn, so we got <laughs> in class on time, didn't we? Yeah, special yes, trick he had there, yes. wasn't it? We like to make sure that you're nice and sharp before the training course starts. <laughs> um, it's a long enough day as is, so if we can get you in the room early enough, then... It helps us out no end. Half six was a bit early there, wasn't it? <laughs> Basically, for the listeners, just so you know what the joke is, um, our trainer for the day, Tom, um, I, can't, I can't pronounce his surname, <laughs> because it was absolutely nothing like how he'd written it on the board. You know how teachers write, write their names on the board? Surname sounded nothing like it was written down. But basically, what happened was, um, jumped in the shower an hour early because he hadn't put his clock back, because he was on UK time opened the uh, bathroom door and it set the fire alarms off so everybody in the hotel were uh, given a nice early call so we all made it to breakfast on time we all made it to the class on time and like Chris says um, very intensive on the first day and and what's the reasoning behind that Neil why is it so intensive the first day well the first day uh, is the theory day um, as Chris mentioned there um, and there is a lot of theory behind uh, the science of making pictures um, as, as has been pointed out before, it's not just a case of twiddling some knobs, uh, measuring some some effects off the screen and then suddenly everything's right. You really need to understand a lot more about what's going on beneath the surface and it really is a complicated subject. So we try and fit as much as we can into that first day so that there's plenty of time on the second day to actually do some real work calibrating the displays. One thing that I, I don't think people maybe on the forums appreciate or take on board is the actual science behind how a video image is put together. Um, it's certainly something that opened my eyes. Chris, what, was, what were your thoughts on, on as the day went on and, and you got more of the theory? Did it start to click? Oh, only eventually. Yeah, I mean, I'll, initially I thought, yeah, this is making sense. Um, but then <clears throat> it just seems to go deeper and deeper into a field you thought you knew about. And it just uncovers so much more stuff. Yeah. It, it took a while, but it, it gradually does click in. That is a long, long day, that. And really speaking, you're itching to have a go at the kit itself. and Because to, to, actually the hands-on stuff is where it all finally falls into place. Of course, with a bunch like us, acting like the Keystone Cops, it was a lot more fun as well. But, uh, yeah, it's it's certainly an intensive thing to go through, which a lot of people would, would not at all understand and probably wouldn't undertake you know, in the first instance. So it really was... Um quite intensive Neil in in as far as the theory side and um, I think all of us had had things that we knew confirmed as it were 
Um, but there's also a, a lot of the science, um, which I know, speaking for myself, I didn't feel uh, fully appreciate until it was explained to me. So maybe you can go into the science a little bit more for, for our listeners. Well, sure. I'll, I'll uh, spare all of the listeners the boring theory part that you guys had to get put through in quite as much detail. Um, really, uh, everything behind it has an explanation. Um, the, the picture that you see on screen doesn't arrive there by accident. It looks the way it looks because people have made conscious decisions uh, throughout the whole production chain. And really what we try to explain during the ISF training course is, you know, why colours are the way that they are, how you perceive colours, what the standards are uh, that dictate what you see on the screen. Um, and also try and give you a little bit of of the theory behind uh, colour science. Um, one of the things that we touched on, if you remember, was we looked at some of the, the colour space conversion uh, form formulas. And uh, I could see a lot of uh, eyes glazed over when we mentioned those. But if I remember rightly, there's only a couple of slides on colour space conversions. But that subject on its own is worthy of books of almost a thousand pages. So if you go into it, it's incredible the amount of science uh, that has to go into making the actual picture that people see on screen. Now, one of the things that, that people always always argue is that, well, I want to see the image the way I like to see it. But I think that perhaps one of the things you'll have been able to take out of the training is that really saying that has no meaning because all of this content has been produced to look a certain way. Um, and it all comes down to the science of video. And that's a, I think that's an important thing to pick up on there, Neil, is um, that filmmakers go to an awful lot of trouble um, when they actually put their pictures down on film. And then when it's uh, transferred to DVD or, or high definition or whatever other format it's, it's transferred to, everything's done to an industry standard. And obviously if you don't have your display device um, set to, to as accurate as possible towards that standard, you're not actually seeing the film as it's supposed to be seen and that's something that struck home with me. I, I mean, I take it, I picked that up right. Yeah, absolutely, 100% correct. One of the examples that we use in the ISF training class really at the start to, to help this point really hit home for people is we use the example of a, a record player. Um, now with the record player turning at 33 and a third RPM, you get the music playing back exactly the way it was supposed to be, um, so the conductor, sorry, the uh, composer, when he was writing the music, wrote it to be played in a certain way. When it was played back live, it was played back exactly in a certain way, precisely as the composer wrote it down, and then of course recorded. Now, when you play that back, if you were to play that LP one or two RPM faster, the notes would be changed; they would be a higher pitch. And if it was played back slower, there would be in a lower pitch. So people spend uh, inordinate amounts of time and money to make sure that their LPs turn at the correct speed. And the same is exactly the truth for video. It's just that there are more and more parameters that come into play, but you can put most of these parameters back to match the industry standards and see things exactly the way that whoever produced the content imagined just in the same way as you would expect the composer of the piece of music to recognise his piece of music was played the way he mm -hmm. intended when he was listening to it. 
that that's an excellent analogy. It certainly brings things home to people, and, and maybe they can understand it a little bit better. Um, Chris, al- although it was hard going on on the first day, I, I take it by being there and, uh, and appreciating what was what was being said and what was being taught. You, un- you now understand that possibly that DV, even though it's a good little tool for people to set up their, their brightness and their contrast and the sharpness settings. Yeah. There's a lot more to it than that. Oh, there's a hell of a lot more to it, isn't there? Uh, to get the, the, the picture looking as pin sharp as you wanted to, and particularly the, um, the the colour saturation to make things you know, as real, as close to the director and filmmaker's intention as it was meant to be. I mean, certainly, for example, uh, it, it's so easy to get your colour completely off just because you think it's eye-catching and vivid. You know, that's not how it's meant to be. And, of course, when you've got your, an oversaturated image anyway, you're losing detail as well. So, But, of course, you're sitting there thinking, wow, look at, the, look at that, look how colourful that is. But it's completely bogus, isn't it? It's not the way it's meant to be seen. So you're actually doing yourself a bit of a disservice by, you know, having it as, you know, as garish as you, as you might particularly like. Turning it down, finding the real parameters of how it's meant to look is going to produce a, a startlingly better image. Um and that you know the, the truth behind that was uh, was certainly brought home to me because I, I do like a nice bright colourful image, but obviously you know I may have been going wrong somewhere down the line there. And yeah, there's there's a lot of things that can be explored, um, but you you really need to spend the time and the effort, to, and the results definitely are worth it. You know, at the at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> it's an interesting point, especially on something as simple as colour saturation. People always want to see a picture which is as, as colourful as possible. Yeah. Uh, and they always, well not always, but a lot of people tend to boost the colour controls um, a lot further than they should be. And you're right that it does, you know, it has a pop on the screen sometimes when you look at it at first glance. Mm. But then when you look at it for more than two seconds you see how unnatural it is and just yeah, it, it's really horrible. Yeah, it looks it looks horrible, but when you have it set properly and you have you have adjusted your eye, and it doesn't take long to adjust your eye to see what it should actually look like, it all looks much more natural, and it really doesn't look any less saturated. It just looks more natural and realistic. Yeah, and of course the sharpness as well. I mean, I know people with their you know, their plasmas and LCDs who are whapping the sharpness up to its its fullest degree, thinking that they it's making their picture their high def picture look even more sharp, you know, and, and adding that three-dimensionality. But, of course, as we studied in quite close up, all it's doing is putting lines beside the edge of each object, um, which is totally shouldn't be there, and you're losing detail because of them. So, you know, it's actually the, the wrong thing altogether. I think that's, again, one of the things on the course that, that certainly you guys will have really benefited from, is seeing how these controls... Uh, if used incorrectly, can actually damage a picture a lot more than they improve it. Neil, I think the one thing that I took away from from the training over the two days is that um, really what manufacturers want to do is is not supply remote controls and colour buttons and sharpness buttons and and things like that because um, generally, and and this is going to sound horrible, but generally people don't know how to use them. And <laughs> how how do you think that the the industry overcomes that that point where you're basically trying to re-educate people that they, th- you know, every, everybody thinks that they know a good picture when they see one, but it's generally not the case. Am I right with that assumption? Well, I, I think that a lot of people certainly don't know a good picture when they see it. 
Um, and it's well, it's actually easy to define a good picture if you can actually show someone what a good picture is. It's very difficult to explain to someone what a good picture is. Um, they can't see the errors that are present in it um, if you're just trying to explain it to them. Now, the industry as a whole certainly has uh, really taken on, we've, we've seen it quite clearly over the last couple of years, um, that the message that a good picture now comes through proper setup of the display, it's really starting to hit home with a lot of manufacturers. So I think most people that are listening to this will know, for example, that Pioneer uh, plasma panels have an ISF mode built into them on some models. But however, all models contain all controls needed to do a full calibration. Um, we look at some other models, Fujitsu, all have all controls required to do uh, proper calibration. Well, sorry, the 58 series all have. Um, and then we look down at the projection market. We have companies like Epson, BenQ, uh, and Focus, uh, and moving into the higher end, Runco, uh, Vidicron all of who have actual ISF calibration menus built right into the devices. Now, the reason that these companies uh, go to the extent of putting these interfaces in there is that they understand that it's impossible to supply a display which is completely calibrated for use in the environment that it's going to be used in. It's simply impossible to do that. Um, and again, I think that's probably something that became quite clear throughout the training course, it would be completely impossible to supply a display that was 100% properly calibrated out of the factory. Now, by having all of these controls and so on, it adds a lot of complexity uh, to the setup of the device, but to someone who does know what they're doing, um, it gives you a lot of flexibility and it means that you can really match those industry standards. Now, the companies who have implemented the ISF menus have recognized that they need to offer this complexity because people want as good a picture as possible. But they also realize that the guy who's going to use the display perhaps doesn't want to worry so much about all of this complexity. Um, if they get someone in who's going to set it up perfectly for them, well, the last thing that they want to be able to do is, is screw it up themselves. You know, if the kids come in from school and play around with the remote control or something like that, all the hard work of setting it up is lost. The ISF menus are actually stored uh, in a separate memory space within the displays and they're password protected. And what that means is that, that these optimal settings uh, are safely stored within the display. Uh, there's no chance of screwing them up or anything like that. <laughs> and they can be easily recalled from the remote control. And, and that way that's really the best compromise I think that's possible. The displays need to have the controls built into them uh, so that people who do know what they're doing can set them up properly but also there needs to be a way of making it as simple as possible for people as well uh, to recall these safe profiles um, and that's where the ISF menus come in and give you you know the best of both worlds. Neil you need um, you need very high quality displays to benefit from ISF don't you? Or is that another myth? It, it, it's another myth, isn't it? Any display can be calibrated. Isn't that correct? Oh, it's 100% a myth. One of the things, again, that you saw on the day was that we had some very, very high-quality displays available for people to work with. Um, and it's easy on these displays to see where the money goes that makes them a high-quality display. 
but even a display now, and and really our idea and understanding of what high quality display is is really changing. And um, the likes of a Panasonic uh, PH9 or a PH10 commercial panel uh, under a thousand pounds in the 42-inch version that can be absolutely classed as a high quality display. Um, and when it is calibrated, uh, the picture is really, really fantastic. Um, almost perfect in terms of its uh, grayscale and so on. It has some other errors. Uh, and that's typically what you find with lesser displays, shall we call them. Uh, <laughs> it's not so much that you can't uh, calibrate them perfectly, but you have to put up with more and more compromises in the calibration for a start and also secondly in the actual video processing um, that goes on in these displays. Now again something we don't have a lot of time on the ISF class to talk about scaling and deinterlacing other than to give you know a sort of rudimentary overview of what's going on but what should have come across is just how unbelievably complex some of the processing that goes on in a modern display actually is it's it's mind-bending sometimes when you think about the maths that's going on in these displays. Yeah, um, I second and, that. Yep, and that's where corners can be cut in, in the manufacturing process. It's simply difficult. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of processing power to make a very good video processor. Um, so some money can be saved in the manufacturing process by using something a bit cheaper. Um, so you can still do a lot of calibration, but the, the level of accuracy and the level of performance through the absence of picture artifacts, that's what you get on a lesser display. But the the thought that you can only calibrate, you know, a top end display from the very finest companies, yeah, that's absolutely a myth. Everyone will notice an improvement from a calibrated display. So Chris Kaz, you've both been on, on the ISF course now. What did you take from it? Uh so let's start with Chris. Well, Again, what amazed me was the sheer science that goes into producing an image and the way that you actually can perceive that image on the uh, the finished display uh, and consciously how wrong your eyes probably are to what a true image, a true calibrated and highly defined and uh, really high resolution image should look like. So. Yeah, I took away the fact that I've got a, a little bit of homework to do and the fact that I'm now going to be studying DVDs, hopefully, um, uh, with a, a much more clinical eye than what I, than the eye I usually cast over these things. So with a bit of luck, things will be a lot more detailed and people who've got, you know, who take it seriously will suddenly begin to find a lot more uh, detail to look for because uh, you can point them in the right direction if they go and get them get their screens calibrated properly then they can enjoy exactly what we will be promoting um which i think is a a, a great step forward in any kind of a visual medium so yeah the whole thing was a, was a very beneficial course as far as i was concerned um, initially terrifyingly over my head <laughs> science not my major thing movies that's my thing and if this can make me view movies in a much much um better way and then you know it can only be a great thing. So I thoroughly enjoyed the course and I recommend anyone to go on it, obviously. Uh, so, yeah, I, I took a lot from it. It's a good experience. And Kaz, what, what did you take away from, from the two days? I have to say there's not a great deal I can say more than what Chris has already summed up. It's just uh, a matter of the fact that 
I've been reviewing movies for a while, and the way I judge picture quality um, has been very much based on what I've picked up as I've went along, what I've read upon, and uh, comparisons between so many watching so many different movies. Um, there's nothing that scientific towards it until now, and so having this foundation, um, having uh, gone on this course, it's given me a, a completely different outlook on the way I can now, I suppose, professionally judge a movie's and um, that's that's pretty damn important, given that we're all reviewers. So, um, so yeah, that's what I've taken from it. Well, that's good. It wasn't a waste of money after all. Um, for, for myself, personally personally speaking, um, I think I hammered home quite a few points. I certainly learned things that I didn't know about, which, um, you know, when, you, when you're in this hobby and, and, and you're doing it as in-depth as, as, as we do it, you tend to think, well, yeah, I know how that works and I know how this works. And the you soon learn that maybe your your um, knowledge wasn't as sound as you originally thought and, and I was humbled by a few points I've got to admit but now hopefully all the AV player team and of course myself with the hardware reviews hopefully we're now equipped to certainly give things in a lot more accurate detail um, Neil, I understand for ISF things are moving on apace as well Yes, things are moving on uh, very well, we have some exciting new things which have happened. Um, the first thing which is exciting is that, uh, thanks to the AV forums, we now have a, a European forum where people who have uh, an ISF calibration certificate can come uh, to discuss the subject in some more detail. Uh, there is a, actually a closed forum now that you can only access if you have your ISF calibration certificate. So that's an exciting one for, for all calibrators out there to be involved in. Uh, the second thing is that there is now a, a dedicated forum as well on AV forums uh, where people can go to discuss display calibration um, in some more detail, um, in particular ISF calibration if there are uh, general questions about training or anything like that. It's a place where people will find um, real answers to their, their sort of questions. Uh, as far as the training side goes as well, we also have some exciting new developments. Um, one of the things that's been clear to us for a while is that the day one that, that you guys went through um, really is too much for most people, but it may also surprise you to find that it's not enough uh, <laughs> for quite a few other people. We find that people have a real disparity um, in the level of skill that, that, that they show when they come on the course. So what we're actually doing is we're breaking it out. We're now going to have a, a pre-ISF class, if you like, that's going to cover the basics of, of video um, and of colour theory. We're then going to have the one-day ISF class um, that, that you guys had followed by the following day, uh, a practical session. Uh, we're then going to have a subsequent practical session to teach people more how to use calibration software um, again, it's it's not as straightforward as some people may imagine to use the calibration software um, and how to interpret the instruments and so on that are used in there. Um, so we'll have another day of that. Uh, and then perhaps the most exciting thing for people who've already been trained is that we're going to introduce an advanced ISF calibration class, uh, an ISF2 if you like. Um, so all people who have been uh, ISF trained uh, will be able to come on that and get their 
advanced ISF certificate. Um, and I can assure you that that's going to go into a lot more detail uh, on some of those subjects that had, uh, had eyes glazing over last week. Oh, God. So really looking forward to that one. For, for someone like me, that's an exciting class. <laughs> and I think we'll, we'll have quite some interest around Europe in that particular class. Um, and then, as a final thing, we're also doing some other shorter courses uh, on things like scaling, deinterlacing, noise reduction, um, and some other bits and pieces that really affect picture quality. Um, and also, there'll be some classes on the new anamorphic lenses uh, and how to use them with uh, masking screens and so on. R really, we've tried to develop now a full range of courses for people involved in custom install and video in general to give them a full understanding of the whole chain because it is a complicated subject and if devices are chosen wrongly or if incorrect decisions are made during the setup, uh, if there are calibration issues or anything like that, um, that will affect the performance uh, that's seen on screen and really the goal of everybody now is to give people as good a picture as possible. We have such good quality displays available to us um, that we're really excited about this new development and we're sure that it's going to be quite popular with the with the industry in general. Neil, something that the end users and forum members can, can take from this is that there really is a big interest now in the custom install market as well as, as normal dealers that when they're supplying gear, uh, when they're supplying displays, it's all calibrated correctly for the customer and these people are now coming on to the ISF course. Um, so that's got to be a good thing at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the custom install market in the, U in the UK um, is really interesting. There are actually some phenomenal guys out there um, doing custom install work. The average man in the street may be amazed at what some people have in their houses as far as home theatre goes. Um, and really, these guys recognise 100% the importance of good picture. Um, and it's exciting because everyone, I think, is going to benefit because what happens at the high end uh, always eventually flutters down so that everyone can afford it and benefit from it. Um, and we're not far away from that stage now with display calibration. And, of course, there's the thing in Germany with Samsung offering um, their displays to be properly calibrated when they're, when they're uh, purchased from certain dealers. Is that something that you think is going to come across the UK and, and forum members can take advantage of? Well, yeah, that's something that we're really hopeful uh, for people that don't know Samsung are running a pilot program in Germany at the moment uh, where calibration tools and training uh, are available to all of their dealers. Um, and also uh, the displays themselves have been designed with calibration in mind uh, because Samsung really, um, and really a lot of credit has to go to guys like Joe Kane who work closely with Samsung. Um, for developing the, their sort of understanding as a manufacturer of the importance of picture quality. Um, so Samsung and also Epson is another company uh, which is to be commended for their sort of uh, real decision to go with calibration and understanding how important it is for their customers to be able to get this image. And, and really, people will recognise that these are not companies that are traditionally recognised as high price, um, you know, style over substance uh, players. They're, they're volume players in the market, but they clearly recognise that there is a demand now for best picture quality at all price points. 
um, and they know that calibration is the best way to do that and so they've embraced it 100%. Neil, thanks very much um, for taking us along on the ISF course. I know that we're personally going to benefit from it um, in terms of our reviews and so on um, so on behalf of the AV uh, play team thanks very much uh, that's been our round table for this week don't forget if you've got any questions relating to ISF calibration even if you just want to find out the basics then head over to the ISF calibration forum which is now on the AV forums ask, ask away there's plenty of ISF calibrators who uh, take an interest in the forums and will certainly take an interest in any questions you have so make use of that resource that's all we've got time for this time but stay tuned because we'll be back again in about three or four weeks with another round table made by enthusiasts for enthusiasts wow a free movie thanks this is the AV podcast from the 1st of June 2007, we will have a new look to our schedule. At the start of the month, we will be releasing the AV Podcast Home Cinema Edition. This podcast will feature forum and industry figures discussing the latest news and AV trends, as well as informative discussions on AV science and improving your system. This programme will also feature various interviews from manufacturers and industry personalities as we bring everyone together to discuss our favourite hobby. We'll also discuss the latest home cinema equipment we've reviewed, plus Ian Cullen will give us a five-minute roundup from the gaming world. Regular contributors will include Neil Davidson, John Carlo, Stuart Wright, Gordon Fraser and many more. And in the middle of the month, we will release the AV Podcast Movies Edition, featuring the AV Play Review Team, Chris McAnini, Kaz Harlow and Simon Crust. This podcast will feature the latest movie reviews from the cinema to the home, the latest movie news and events from Hollywood, as well as the always fascinating roundtable discussions. And from time to time, we'll also feature interviews from personalities from the movie-making world. Sadly, this new timetable means that we've had to drop the gaming podcast for the time being as a separate programme. And secondly, Jason Bradbury, who has been the consummate professional and popular newsreader, will be stepping down from the Home Cinema podcast from the 1st of June. We want to thank Jason for helping us launch our podcasts and see them achieve the popular status that they now enjoy. And we would like to wish Jason... All the best. Thanks, Phil. And that just about wraps up another Home Cinema podcast. Until next time, this is Jason Bradbury saying thanks for listening, stay subscribed, and tell your friends. The AV Podcast was presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.